0: You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, first broadcast on the 28th of March 2021 on Monocle 24.
1: Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brulé. Coming up on today's program, my guests, Cornelia Meyer and Urs Buller, and also our very own Gillian Devise is here to look at the weekend's biggest stories. We'll also hear from our woman in Thailand about what's making news in the region.
2: Hi, I'm Gwen Robinson, Monocle's correspondent in Bangkok. And today I'll be talking about Thailand and Myanmar and the escalating crisis in that country after the coup.
1: More from Gwen a little bit later in the program. We'll also check in with our editor, Andrew Tuck in London, and we'll cross over to Lisbon to hear from one of our favorite book and magazine shops in the city. It's the 28th of March, 2021, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday.
3: Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brunei.
1: And good morning from an absolutely gorgeous, stunning, almost feels like first day of summer Zurich. Uh, and I'm very happy to say we have a program. All guests have arrived around the table, uh, despite uh, the changing clocks. You always sort of worry about doing a show on a Sunday morning when the clocks change, uh, that everyone is going to make it. I'm very happy to say that uh, Cornelia Meyer is uh, is here. We haven't seen you during the, win- the winter season. You're here. You've brought bunnies as well, uh, which, is, which is fantastic. Of course, uh, this will be a Easter Sunday one week off and and maybe it's it's a little bit of a of a of a plug for Felber uh, which is which is your local confissory, I would imagine
4: Well yeah it's just it's just you know we, we there's so little to to enjoy we we, we might as well enjoy the, the the small the small blessings we get even if they are only chocolate
1: And uh, just tell me very quickly uh, how how did the winter uh, treat you
4: um, extremely busy because, as you might have seen, the, 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 the oil scene was very busy with, with, with lots of OPEC meetings, um, which kept me busy. The um, supply chain scene was very busy and it's become even busier now we'll with, with what's, what's, ha- what's happening in the Suez Canal. So business-wise, it was very, very busy. But I'm getting so fed up doing interviews via Skype, uh, communicating via via... Uh, um any sort of um, Cisco Webex or whatever and not not having real contacts anymore I think we've we've been benefiting from a lot of like credits we've stored up by meeting people in person and it's now we're coming to the point where it's time again to to rekindle those personal relationships.
1: And here we are this morning. And of course, uh, someone who, well, in, in his normal gig when restaurants are, are open uh, and uh, this country is alive and, and vibrant, it's maybe only half vibrant at the mom- moment. ursbuller uh, is uh, here from the uh, NZZ. Haven't seen you in a while, but I think you've also been hiding uh, up in the Engadin uh, in, in a nice little valley somewhere, but and also looking very handsome and tanned for it as well.
5: Thank you very much. <laughs> nice to be here. <laughs> yeah.
6: yeah.
1: Where are our bunnies, though? Cornelia managed to get to her confissory. I, I don't know. Maybe you've got some treats uh, uh, in in your satchel, but um, I'm yeah, I'm, wondering, I'm so okay, well, sorry. Springley
5: was closed. So okay. I well, it's it. open now. And, you
1: know, maybe you can you can dash out on 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 a break. But just uh, very very quickly from uh, from your side, us as well. You know. How busy has it been uh, for you? I guess over these last few weeks, this toing and froing. Uh, you wrote a little poem recently about the dashed hopes uh, that everyone thought the terraces were going to to be open. They're still not open here, and yet uh, we also see that there's. There seems to be quite a big ghost restaurant scene here. I think a lot of people are still managing to dine out in near restaurants somehow. We just don't talk about it.
5: We will not talk about this. No, no. But it gets really annoying. I guess. I guess now it's it's really time, as Monica says, that we have to we have to go back to, uh, to social life. And uh, well, let, let's see how how it works. <laughs> Indeed, when the sun comes up, comes out. So
1: well, Jillian, you're feeling good about the sun coming out, and of course, everyone. Uh, will know Gillian DeBias' voice, but she's over in Switzerland right now. Uh, we, as I said uh, just before going into the program, we thought you'd be here uh, for maybe you know four or five uh, days. Quarantine <laughs> inbound into Switzerland from the UK has changed, and now you're here for practically a month.
3: Well, I love it. You know, After uh, um, a week or so, I, I sort of looked at you and said, Tyler, would it be okay if I stayed a week longer? And you nodded, said, yeah, go for it. Then like two days later, how about three weeks? <laughs> and then this morning it's like, well, you don't really have to go back.
1: <laughs> no, and, we, we, and we've been talking as well. There's, you know, this is also going back to Urs's uh-huh. point. I mean, everyone is itching for things to open. As Cornelia. I mean, you were saying uh, as well. You know, uh, is it sort of the one year on tipping point? But I think we've been in this moment of everything being cancelled and moved mm-hmm. on. Jillian, we are really sort of pegging our hopes that uh, the Venice Biennale uh, for architecture this year is going to happen. There's been press conferences. It really looks like you know. Yeah, I mean, well, they've still got also, you know, six weeks to go um, roughly till things kick off. Um, so, yeah, you could be here for another I six could, weeks, potentially. I could,
3: I could indeed. <laughs> Hopefully,
1: uh, We're going to cross over to London now as well. Uh, our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, is there this morning. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Tyler. There's definitely no sunshine here. It's, it's certainly not <laughs> the first day
7: of summer here. Although I see on Tuesday it is meant to be a bright and sunny 22, which is the day after we get a slight easing of the rules on Monday,
1: which means that you can gather in groups of six. So it may be a bit of a festive day on Tuesday. Well, it might, but it maybe may also the sun will come a little bit earlier. You know, I, it's, it often does sort of clear around five o'clock in London some days. So, um, it, well, well, I guess it um, it could be a, a crush uh, outside of. Uh, well, I, I guess pubs are open for takeaway. I I, I always forget the, the rules and, what, and no, what's happening. No,
7: there's no the, no, no, t- no takeaway pints and until April the twelfth. That's when the the first. Pubs really begin to reopen, but it's all outdoors from the 12th. But everyone's everyone's kind of, I think, pacing themselves for the 12th. It feels like
1: that's the kickoff for the economy on the 12th. Well, you can probably hear the giddiness in our voices here because it is one of those. I mean, you know those days, uh, what they're like here um, in uh, in Zurich when when the sun the sun comes out. Jillian, uh, we should have I don't, we should have called each other in advance, Andrew. She's got a stripy Breton top on. I've got a stripy Breton tee as well <laughs> um, under under, it's under my. It's the start of the season <laughs>
3: kicking off. It is.
1: She's she's almost like full boat neck. So she thinks she's she's actually she could be a gondolier as well today if she's if she's on en route to Venice. Andrew, tell me very uh, quickly. Uh, it's uh, it's it's almost been one of those weeks in news in the. UK. UK, where a lot has actually moved away from uh, Corona. We have, of course, this whole kill the bill uh, thing, which, of course, is happening um, in, in the UK at, at the moment. Um, and, and and in many ways, things have sort of you know shifted, which is almost a positive thing. Of course, Corona is always in the background, uh, but certainly other stories bubbling up to the fore. Yeah, 20, 25
7: million people now vaccinated. It begins to put the, the conversation in a much a, a more comfortable place. It's over fifty five percent of the adult po- population, so the, the people are, you you sense that people are feeling much much more relaxed. you see fewer people sporting masks uh, walking around on the streets. so the, the conversation has changed we've also had this issue here of the of the, this school teacher who in in the town of Batley showed some students in a in a, in a class about religion he he showed them the Mohammed, um cartoons, which kicked off a little bit last week so it's interesting today that lots of the papers are saying you They've, they've managed to find most of them are, a Muslim writer to come out and, and say, you know, this shouldn't be happening. The teacher, teacher should be left alone. You know, we shouldn't kind of bow down to extremists. But what's interesting, interesting is none of the papers have dared show the cartoons. So they obviously are nervous themselves. So while they're calling on teachers to be braver in the classroom, they haven't stepped up to the the plate on that issue. So that's been a a, a contentious thing. And then this kill the bill thing, obviously, for most of our listeners will know, but it's in in English, in English, English, it has a kind of dual meaning. It means to kill a bill going through Parliament, but to kill the bill is also to murder a policeman. So it's, it's it's a terrible rallying cry. And we are seeing these, demonstrations about an important issue, but which seem to be bringing in uh, quite a large number of nihilists and anarchists who are determined to attack police. So th- these have been contentious points in a few cities overnight.
1: Andrew, just to, I want to go back to uh, the, the story of the, the Mohammed uh, cartoon, of course, all this off, off the back of, of, of Charlie Hebdo. Um, h- how is this being presented? As you said, you know, many people are saying that the, that the newspapers are obviously being shy about this. Is this just media commentators uh, pointing this out on on TV shows where they review the papers or where is that discussion occurring because it yeah it's it's yeah as you said I mean the, the newspapers want to point this out but know why should uh, of course uh, educators uh, be the ones at the brunt of it or at least not feeling that they've got of course that the newspapers and the media have their back? well the teacher is, is currently suspended and has
7: has vanished apparently from his home. Uh, the papers have been out speaking to his neighbours. He has uh, a Muslim family who live next door who say, you know, "This guy is, is, is no troublemaker. He he gives us cards for Eid. You know, he gives our sweets, uh, our kids halal sweets. So he's he's a he's a good guy." He's being portrayed in the paper as this kind of burly rugby-loving, kind of nice young man who seems to have have done shown these cartoons before without it being an issue. This time, however, the school, aware of it, wrote to parents and said, there is an issue here, we're concerned about it, we don't want to upset you. And that's what kind of kicked it off. So in a way, it didn't feel like he had the backing of the school. And then, you know, a few very vociferous people turned up at the gates, uh, including some people who uh, are... uh, on the fringes maybe of, of, of the faith leadership and, and they have kind of whipped this up but it, it hasn't taken off as it were, you thought it might have done and it hasn't taken off as in France everyone's desperately trying to dampen it down but I would say that the, it hasn't made too much in the news pages in the sense of investigations it is in this comment world and in this comment world everybody seems to be coming out saying look we may not do this as teachers we don't think it's great but in context in this country, you should be able to show these cartoons.
1: Mm. And just, uh, I wanted to um, maybe just uh, look at uh, a couple of the other stories that that are making uh, headlines as well. And uh, Andrew, um, stick around for a moment. But uh, Cornelia, where where do you um, want to start uh, this morning, uh, newspapers wise? I mean, you've, uh, it sounds like, (laughs) I mean, this is the thing. I get an email from Cornelia about 6 a.m. that she's already sort of, you know, done all of the global global news. And then she also then comes in and hands me, like, a late-breaking uh, little note card as well. Um, do you maybe want to start not with the international papers, but you, you have a good story from the NZZ, uh, yeah. in fact, um, which is uh, which is an interview uh, which really looking at um, rail and mobility um, in, in Europe.
4: Yeah, it's, it's the CEO of um, Siemens Mobility. And he basically says, you know... We, 50% of all rails in Europe especially are sort of funded half, at least 50% by the state and they want to really double and in certain times more than double the um, the, 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 the the traffic. Um, and he talks about what technology goes in and he's asked, do we have appropriate technology? And he talks about, you know, remote, remote driving of trains, like with cars now, remote driving of trains. He says, yes, the technology is there, but not quite. What I think is lacking, though, in this article is, you know, we rely for so much of our energy transition, which is also part of, you know, being more environmentally more friendly using trains. We rely on electricity, but as especially in Germany and Switzerland, they're ramping down the nuclear plants. They've not really yes, they're doing more in they're doing more in um, in in terms of solar and 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 um, and wind, which is intermittent. So we need more storage. Um, so we come towards a, a crunch point of. Where do we have enough? Do we have enough electricity for all those great things we want to do with energy transition? So he talks about the technology aspect, which obviously is, if if you are Siemens Mobility, that is what it is. But he doesn't talk about do we have sufficient electricity um, to really and sufficient investment in electricity to really double or triple. the rail traffic across mm-hmm. Europe,
1: and Urs, uh, you have a story uh, also out of the NZZ uh, as well. Is it, and I'm not sure if it's the Sunday paper or if it's if it's if it's the main newspaper. Uh, but there's been a lot of uh, discussion uh, and also a lot of investment. There's a lot of money floating around in, Swet- in Switzerland and, and elsewhere, which of course is going to alternative versions of, of meat i don't even know what to what to call them uh, but we've got plant-based meats we've got uh you know synthetic meat which is being grown um and then there's there's a piece today as well you know further uh, on this this whole topic and of course as someone who is out there covering the gastrocene in this country uh, what's what's your take on that story
5: um, yes yeah, some call it clean meat i guess and 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 this is ridiculous i guess i mean, I mean meat has to be a little bit dirty <laughs> for my i mean uh, it doesn't, just doesn't fit into my uh, brain but i'm not i'm not a big fan of those uh, of those um stuff uh, i mean for me it's a little bit like mimicry you know yeah they're, they're imitating meat I mean, I, I think it's great to eat some cauliflower made in the oven or something like that. That's that's great stuff. But why do we have to imitate meat to uh, to please the the people? I, I don't think it's a very good idea. I mean, innovation is very important in in the food department, of course. But uh, I don't think this is really the way. But obviously, it works with uh, with these hamburgers. Uh, what is the name? I just forgot the famous one that was... Oh, the it, um, I was, I
1: was forget as well. Not Impossible, what is it? Yeah, Impos- Impossible is one too. Impossible yeah. is one of them. And
5: some of them are really amazing, I have yeah. to say. They're very similar to meat, but in, in Zurich they have this planted chicken. Yeah, the planted an chicken is a big deal here. Yeah, And this is awful. I mean, I just tried it. Maybe if you are a top cook, you can make something good out of this. But I didn't manage. I mean, it was just, I just didn't like
6: it. <laughs> the, the vision
1: of you not managing is, is, is quite something. Um, a- Andrew, as, as the pescatarian around the microphones uh, this morning, w- do, you have, do you have a take on on whether we should be pursuing such meat projects? But I guess also this idea that, you know, and, and I don't know if you tried that planted chicken when, when you've been in, in Zurich, but yeah, it is sort of chicken Um, But then, of course, you need to sort of somehow. Teriyakiize it or something else to to make it kind of go beyond. And uh, do you think there's something odd in us trying to sort of co-op sort of meat? You know, especially when you there's you know it's asparagus season, There's many other things you can eat anyway.
7: So I, I I don't eat meat and I don't eat chicken and I I, I never kind of hanker after you know a piece of kind of protein shaped into a chicken d- drumstick it's, it's, it's not why not Andrew not <laughs> but I would just say I, I think you know, it's an interesting debate because you know we have now, from this discussion in our mind, an, an ice cow in a, in, a, in a valley in Switzerland being
1: killed and everybody eating the meats and enjoying it. But Andrew, you the, paint the, a picture. The, hold on, hold on, Andrew. You paint oh. a picture right now. Use this happy cow. It sounds like the, the villagers all descend on this poor beast you know, with knives and forks. It's not quite like that. But anyway,
7: I, I think... But anyway, I, we, we, we imagine short supply chain and people enjoying what they eat when the reality is, you, you walk past, you know, restaurants here at the end of the day, they're throwing out meat that hasn't been eaten. So there's hundreds of animals get reared in this incredibly intensive, complicated way. Then we just throw the meat away. It's, it's, it, we don't even consider it as in, you know, something's been slain. And I know you're going to come to the story of the Suez, but there it's like you, how horrifying. Many of these ships are packed with cattle, which mm. are being moved from Europe, you know, Dodgily down through the sewers, off into like, moved. Out it moved, yeah. uh, it moved so again <laughs> i think we should have a debate about it because it, it's not it's not a simple nice picture it, it's obviously o- o- often a very gruesome wasteful stupid trade so if people love the meat they eat and it's reared in that way great if it's not then i think this is not too bad moving to more other sources of protein
1: Okay, let's just uh, before we go back to London, uh, we've got a bit of time before we got the news. I just want to, uh, you know, do whip around the microphones uh, to talk about supply chain. We were talking about this before we went on air, uh, Cornelia, about what is happening in the Suez. Right now, uh, does this also just well, of course, it reveals the fragility of the supply chain, as we've seen on many other occasions uh, across here. But here you have obviously a vessel of serious scale, uh, which, of course, is 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 wedged into uh, the, the side of the Suez and not, of course, not all the global supply chain has ground to a halt. But this is a serious issue because, of course, you look at all of these other super freighters which are backed up, of course, down the Suez, uh, and 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 then, of course, it raises, as Andrew is saying, these questions of supply chains. Are we simply at a point right now where we need to be getting back to maybe things but being made in Long We are.
4: We are onshoring. I mean, you saw that um, last week. Um, the CEO of Microsoft said he's investing um, five billion in Texas for a microchip plant. He will invest. In other places in the U.S., in Europe, we are localizing. It all started when the U.S.-China trade war started. And this just shows. And, and it shows another thing. We are using 21st century ships. You know, global trade has grown Tenfold since 1980, so and over the last 40 years, so obviously the ship have grown bigger to accommodate that, and so we we have these huge 21st century ships which is, essentially have to go through 19th century waterways. Beat Panama, be it here. So, so, so some things has to give at some stage. And yeah, our supply chains are extremely vulnerable and we've, 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 see, we've seen that.
1: Mm. Uh, so here's, here's a question for, for all of you. Gillian, I'll start with you. Do, you. do you think that something needs to be done? And I don't want to go back to sticker nationalism when you go and buy a plate or when you go and buy your garments or you go and buy your lettuce potentially, but do we have to have some type of move t- towards regional or local pride now of course there are there are elements of this right now it's often around the food supply chain Uh, but do you think if we're going to get people you know and we may not think if we're living in the states about our you know about the the microchips in our Microsoft uh you know devices but I'm wondering does there need to be a little bit of that when we see things like this ever given wedged into the Suez Canal
3: in principle, yes, but I don't think it should be regulated because I think when people are told what to do it can often have the opposite effect and then I think it does become too much like nationalism and and, and that can be a dangerous slippery slope on many levels but I think if it is really more about education and and making it uh, an interesting story, a fascinating story, I think people do care more about where things come and I think it has to come up and you have to stimulate people to thinking I want to do this rather than dictating that that's what they have to do. Mm.
1: Or so when it comes time to buy a, a shovel uh, or you maybe need something for the garden and uh, you're thinking about your balcony uh, when you go to migro or one of the big stores in switzerland are you looking for that little red flag with the white cross on it uh, in Schweiz, made in switzerland uh, or are you going best price or best design uh, because I, you know you do see here that they're you know i think they do play on you know trying to push the local especially with a flag maybe more than you would see in other markets
5: Yes, I buy very much uh, local stuff. I think it's very, very important, really, and uh, it it's growing really. I mean, uh, there there is a development that is really in, uh, goes in a good direction, I guess. But talking about micro, sometimes they have this stance that uh, there is written uh, from your region or something like that, and then you watch. Uh, uh, and see that it comes from Spain and then I wonder okay well, Europe I, Europe's, I, I, Europe's is a big region the, yeah, exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> it depends on what <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> but i think it goes, you're considering it go, i think it, 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 there's two sides to this it's not just the migros. i think what we should all do is look more after the small shops you know the small shops that make the high streets in 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 the everyday towns um and and we've been you know woefully neglecting them And the question for the Swiss and for other countries is, do we want the Swiss high streets in small towns to become like, I'm I'm also British and it hurts me to see when I go to smaller towns in the UK, how the high, high streets have just become dead or chains. so do we want to do that so it's it's the region but it's also supporting your local small merchants it comes at a price but it's worth that price so you don't have a desertification of the in inner cities or inner, inner towns and there's another thing with supply chain a lot we don't see. You know, when you buy things, you buy a mobile phone. These things, you buy a car. These things have these parts have been shipped back and forth. So, so some of it we see and we can take pride, but some of it it's just. Unbelievable how complex, and I'm I used to run a a very substantial supply chain back in the days when I was in the corporate world. Um, it's unbelievable how complex this has become. You know, even if you have a if you if you if you go and 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 tank put tank um, up fill up your your car, when you think of all the things that go into the supply chain of pumping that oil, Hmm. it's just unbelievable how complex this is.
1: Andrew, you're just happy that you've got a car now that you can put. Some kind of petrol in, because that what we <laughs> and we can come back to customer service and sh- supply chains uh, another day. But that 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 was also a, almost as painful a journey as getting a super tanker yeah, up, uh, up a narrow what, canal.
7: That's a story of, of vanishing brands. But I, I don't think we should fetish. You, know, you have to get the balance right. We don't want to over fetishize this demand for local. Work. When you have these restaurants say, there's nothing here that didn't come from more than you know, 50, five, 500 meters away from the, the front door. <laughs> you know, we still like bananas. We still like oranges. So let, let's know what we're good at and, and get those things local. And and let's appreciate and value the things that come in from abroad as well. Trade is a, a wonderful thing. It's just when every every piece of trade is being done, just to... Denude the cost of
1: things to make things cheaper and cheaper. Then suddenly, then that's when you get caught in these traps. And then I guess what I was thinking about as well is also the other story this week, which is you know, this this call for the Union Jack to be flying over you know, pretty much you know all government institutions, be they at a municipal level uh, as much of of course uh, uh, ministries um, as well, and maybe maybe we need to be in the sticker business as well because I could imagine there is going to be maybe be more Union Jacks also sort of you know applied to. Not bananas. I don't think they're going to be growing bananas just yet, uh, but 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 maybe other things that end up in your waitrose or John Lewis. Well, they are using this flag as a, as a divisive thing, and it should be a uniting thing.
7: Flags should be something that everybody feels that they have some ownership over and some 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 sense of rallying around. But I think this there is going to be a, a kind of a, a made-in-Britain moment coming up. And it's funny, you, you know a, a long-going story. We're clearing somebody's house who died. And I've been struck just over the last few days is that everything you turn over is you know, made in Birmingham. It's made in Sheffield. It, it's made in Solihull. It's all of these, you know, everything from, from furniture to clocks. If it was 50 years ago, it was made here. If you went in a house now and turned over all that furniture, it would be made in China. It would not be made here. So it's extraordinary how the average home was just filled with things that were made all within a couple of hundred miles radius of where you lived.
1: Indeed. Also, the news is also made in the UK as well. Crossing back to London, Emma Nelson is there with the headlines.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. The US has expressed its horror at the killing of dozens of protesters in Myanmar this weekend. At least 91 people have died, bringing the total to more than 400. A giant container ship blocking the Suez Canal has moved slightly. Efforts to dislodge the ever-given have enabled its stern and rudder to move a little. And good news for Andrew Tuck. London has been voted the most vegetarian-friendly restaurant place On Earth, a survey shows the best region of the world for vegetarians to live in is the United States. Zurich ranks globally as the sixth most attractive city for vegetarians, but the least affordable. And those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich.
1: Thanks, Emma. No, no headlines about uh, the cost of eating planted chicken uh, here. here. Urs uh, is smiling over here, Emma. But uh, Urs, would you would you would you agree with that? Do you think that that uh, you know when you're writing your columns, uh, are vegetarians well served? I mean, I know that we've got one of the oldest vegetarian restaurants, so they claim anyway. Um, I think maybe people in other parts of the world and uh, from millennia before might say otherwise. But uh, are people well served here?
5: Not so well, I guess, yes. uh, Friends of mine who are vegetarian, they say it could be much better, so they are not... Um, it's not a condition they were really pleased with, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, I'm, I'm surprised about Emma, this. Do I, Emma,
1: do we have the source for this? Uh, the story? Do we know uh, <laughs> what what federation? Uh, gave you this news. I, t- I
0: wonder whether it might be a Swiss vegetarian organization, <laughs> although I couldn't possibly comment.
5: <laughs> but of course, we have this chain Tippets, and it's in London too. So they yeah. have expanded to London. So they are very successful here too. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, anyway, uh, we'll, and we'll go out and sample. And of course, when you get to Zurich, we'll let you know otherwise, or maybe we'll send Jillian. Um, <laughs> on, on, on a bit of a, a field trip. It's uh, just gone 10.31 uh, here in uh, Zurich. Uh, time to head over to Bangkok uh, right now. Our Gwen Robinson is there, of course. Uh, we heard in the news headlines uh, that uh, Myanmar, uh, very much uh, a focus story uh, at the moment. So very good to be talking to you. Uh, Gwen, uh, so kap.
2: Oh Well, so adi or should I say ninkalavar?
1: You could say that if you want to uh, as well. But uh, Gwen, even just in the last 24 hours, uh, we've seen, uh, aside from uh, horrendous scenes, but also uh, quite horrendous numbers uh, also out of uh, out of Myanmar. And um, and an interesting story, which maybe we can come to in a moment. But the, the, the NZZ here in Switzerland is also reporting, you know, you know how are we here, and also who is making, of course, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, this a little bit more comfortable, and uh, and all eyes pointing to um, to Moscow uh, on this, that the generals are very cozy um, with with Russia, and Russia also seeing that this is uh, you know maybe you know, good for a new foray uh, because you know, Russia has been a little mm-hmm. bit out of the scene in in right. Southeast Asia uh, on some levels, uh, and now this is also uh, coming to the fore as well.
2: Well, that's a very good point. I I think it takes a slightly warped mind to think that supporting a kind of completely murderous junta is a great entry point into Southeast Asia. But that's clearly partly the case, because we watched yesterday this, not only amid the extraordinary violence, I mean, the worst day since the February 1 coup, but we also saw this obscene display of incredible hardware, military hardware, rolling out for this annual armed forces day parade and in pride of place was the deputy defense minister of russia sitting there um you know watching the the show and then turning up in the evening to a gala dinner where uh, the military chief uh, Minong Line and others were all there in their uh, evening dress and um there he was so Definitely the Russians are making a big push in Myanmar, but let's not forget that for many years it was China which armed and protected uh, the Myanmar military, even under Aung San Suu Kyi, a lot of the equipment does come from China. So there's you know, lots of, little, lots of friends that they've got still, um, but I, I think the, the number is dwindling.
1: Just, Gwen, on that story, and I'm just going back to sort of Burma's you know, new friends. Is it because uh, you know, Moscow has just been better with the checkbook? Um, or is there, you know, the story um, in the end of it, it raises the question that also uh, that yeah, that maybe also the leadership, um, you know, in Apidaw, maybe that they were also just getting a little bit uh, wary of, of of China. So they thought that they needed new friends or is, is this just really money money speaking at this point?
2: Well, no, that's exactly, that's a very, that, that really is it, actually, which is that there has been a, a, a somewhat cooling of the relationship over the last, um, well, at least uh, since 2015 when Aung San Suu Kyi came to power. She's now incarcerated, as I think people know, and her NLD government is, is in hiding and uh, has been ousted. But uh, she actually uh, established quite a good working relationship with the Chinese. I think probably much to the Myanmar military's um, distaste and uh, that uh, was proceeding. China's investments were really um, increasing under the NLD government. Um, But also, if we're talking about Myanmar military friends, um, India is also a very big supplier of military equipment and was also present at the Armed Forces Day celebration. So um, you've got a triumvirate there and even though the Chinese are clearly not the flavor of the month with the with the junta, they've got so much military equipment and it's an old relationship and it's also a very vital one because this is a bordering country, unlike Russia, which is a little bit further away. So I think that you would probably see these uh, these countries remain as, as core friends and they've con- constantly uh, protected Myanmar in the UN Security Council despite numerous attempts to... Uh, pass resolutions and um, condemn the the junta. That has not happened because both China and Russia uh, constantly uh, defend it. Um, And that's the situation. But what was very interesting today was an extraordinary statement from 12, the, the defense chiefs of 12 countries, and that includes the UK, the US, even Greece, Italy, Germany, and incredibly Japan and South Korea. Uh, which have never before uh, teamed up with other militaries to condemn uh, a fellow Asian nation. And it was a very strong statement condemning the use of lethal violence against unarmed uh, civilians. So that, I think, uh, really does put the Hunter on notice. That would hurt. That would really hurt, I think.
1: And Gwen, what does some form of probably we can't talk about intervention, but some type of of mediation? you know and and if this happens, you know who is going to to take the lead? Because you do feel you know, you mentioned Japan, they are obviously heavily invested uh, in the country. They don't obviously want to see moves um, you know from the likes of uh, of russia and and many others would would be feeling the same. Any sort of you know read um, in diplomatic circles in terms of what happens?
2: Well, that's the—that's really literally the $64 million question. I think there's so much behind the scenes diplomatic uh, maneuvering going on. I mean, you could divide it between ASEAN uh, in Southeast Asia is taking a bit of a lead and then UN, the UN in New York, uh, all kinds of governments are involved. The I word intervention uh, has to be, I mean, people pale, diplomats all pale at the, at the mention of that and there's no... Uh, you know, everyone will dismiss the the notion that there could be any form of intervention, meaning physical intervention. There's a very strong push to ratchet up uh, every kind of sanction possible and actually probably try and bring the country and the economy to its knees. Um, so that would be, I guess, uh, the first step. There's a fixation, I think, in persuading Russia and uh, China in the Security Council to support a resolution. I, I just don't see that that's I mean, there's a fixation that a security Council resolution would would help. i I don't see what a security resolution uh, security Council resolution could do uh, in terms of condemning Myanmar, and meanwhile the US and others are um, ramping up their sanctions. So the economy is taking you know daily hits. I mean it's really down a black hole already. there was a forecast by the World Banker. Uh, on friday that uh myanmar will see minus 10 percent growth this year but i would i would actually probably add another zero to that the way it's going everything is paralyzed banking everything so you know intervention all the people on the streets in myanmar are holding up signs like r2p right to protect you know invoking that um international agreement uh, that that some kind of direct intervention can be invoked if if violence gets too Uh, out of control. But uh, so far, there's nobody stepping up to it. And I think Japan would probably be the last country in the world that would want to try and get involved militarily anyway.
1: Um, Gwen, just before we go, uh, Cornelia here in Zurich uh, just has a, has a quick uh, question or comment to add.
2: Mm. Yeah, I,
4: I just sure. just very very small comment. If you look at Russia, it's a true and tried thing. If you look at what they've done in Syria, it's sort of following following precisely that thing. So if, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Putin has been very strong in trying to get his bridge into the Middle East now he's going getting himself back into into um into into into, uh, into Asia through this he's good at using these conflicts with um with um with China you know it but Myanmar is so important for the Belt and road initiative that they will they will do everything to 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 sort of accommodate so in that sense anti-asean countries you know asean countries they will not intervene in another asean Country, they may con, they may, they may condemn, but even there, you know, they're they're in one ASEAN, so it's 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 so. It, my heart goes out to the poor people in Myanmar who seem, you know, we have some Western countries making big statements. There may be some sanctions, but but who is really going to do something?
1: Mm, and and just, I, 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 I think, go ahead, yeah.
2: sorry, go ahead. Go ahead no, ben. I was just going to say, I think that sums it up extremely well, absolutely. Um, but the big difference with Syria is that, of course, the uh, Russian boots on the ground, there's not going to be anything like that here at the moment. It'll all be sort of friendly gestures, protecting it in the Security Council and and lots of arms, lots of arms. There was a lot of Russian military hardware on display yesterday. Um, But the other thing not to forget, and there is some hope that Thailand, which is just across the border and is now struggling to reopen its tourism industry and get over the, the second wave of COVID and has plans to go uh, into opening up from, uh, from actually, well, ve- very soon, um, is looking at the prospect possibly of refugee flows out of Myanmar. So Thailand is not happy at all. They have a long, cosy relationship with the Burmese military and uh, there is some hope that maybe the Thais could exert some pressure or at least have a channel into uh, the generals that uh, are leading this junta.
1: Gwen Robinson, uh, our correspondent in Bangkok, thanks very much for that. We'll uh, look forward to catching up, of course, over the coming days and weeks. You're listening to Monocle uh, on Sunday. We're live in Zurich. We're going away for a very short break.
4: Monocle's April issue is all about smart ideas from smart people. So why not join us as we take the pulse of some of the best globally minded thinkers. Here's what's on the agenda.
0: In Culture, we introduce you to five courageous reporters on the front line. And in Design, we interview some of the world's most renowned creators, including IKEA's flat-packing pioneer, Frederica Inga. We spend a lot of time and really understanding how people live and um, what they really need for everyday life.
4: All that and more is there for the taking in Monocle's April issue. Order your copy today or subscribe for instant access to our digital editions. 10.42
1: here in Zurich. 9.42 uh, if we head over to Lisbon. It's exactly where we're going uh, right now to speak to Lois Cunha. He is the co-founder of Under the Cover Book and Magazine Shop in Lisbon. Uh, Of course, a place which has made a bit of an appearance from time to time uh, in our own pages uh, and bulletins uh, as well. Bom dia.
6: Bom dia, Teller.
1: Uh, maybe just uh, bring our listeners up to speed. Uh, I think it's always good in in the times of this pandemic. What is uh, what's happening in uh, in, in retail uh, at the moment uh, in in Portugal? Everything fully reopened? Are you are you trading uh, as as normal with? I mean, I'm sure you've got all of the regular hygiene restrictions, but can you operate as a normal
6: entity at the moment? Yeah, well, we have to. We had uh, a couple of uh, rough months uh, in the beginning of the year. Lockdown started uh, somewhere in uh, January, in the beginning, and so we were under lockdown for almost two months, I believe. And uh, two weeks ago, we were uh, finally able to open doors, which was uh, good. Business was uh, was hard. Uh, we were selling online, of course, but. Uh, uh, especially January was uh, was the hardest. We had like uh, almost fifty percent break in sales, so it was rough. But everything is uh, getting back to some sort of normal now.
1: Mm. Uh, tell me, um, obviously you've got a combination of, of course, of of, of magazines and and books. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what what yeah. have the trends been in in magazine sales? We I mean, know we've touched on it a couple of times in this program. We've noticed that. You know, uh, well, in London, um, also here in uh, in Zurich as well, that uh, we've really seen that magazine sales, and not just monocle sales, but I mean, just of, of everything. That there's a curiosity of people wanting to to come to the newsstand. They want to flick through things, and and you know, maybe once upon a time, people were leaving with just one magazine on a Sunday or two magazines. They now leave with an armful of magazines, mm-hmm. um, and we've really noticed sort of sales on the uptick. Can you say that maybe the the experience is a little bit similar in terms of people their. Level of of exploration, their level of of maybe being adventurous and trying new titles—is that also happening with you?
6: Yeah, I do think that uh, this the pandemic made uh, people realize how important it is to be in a physical shop and how important it is to to have this tactile uh, you know contact with the the product. Uh, for sure, we we see people. Um, Really looking forward to to coming to the store and to browse through our titles. I also think uh, the best thing about this uh, small businesses retail is the the shopping experience is uh, kind of a part of the process to choose uh, your your reading material. And yes, of course, uh, when people come to the store, they are more likely to take more than one title. They may come for one and then take two or three. That doesn't happen online uh, as frequently because usually you go for that one you like and you get home delivery or uh, click and collect. It's not the same thing as going to the shop and, and see for yourself.
3: Mm. I'm uh, curious if um, people's book buying tastes are a bit of a barometer uh, for the mood of the moment. When you opened up again, what kind of books were people buying? Was it fiction? Was it science fiction or was it sort of, you know, really serious, heady, thoughtful tomes?
6: Well, our product is mainly magazines. Um, We kind of have, magazines from uh, very different uh, subjects there's people looking forward for more of literary uh, magazines kind of getting away from all this but the truth is most of the magazines on our shelves today they were produced under lockdown Uh, so you kind of see how it has an impact also in the producing the way what they were produced Uh, so there's no really getting away from it I, i think People are more interested, if not in the literary magazines, than the ones that are talking about this in uh, a different perspective. Uh, and we see a lot of magazines that are um, showing the silver lining in all of this uh, pandemic and how uh, also made people come together to solve problems. Uh, so, yeah, uh, it depends really on on what you're looking for. But uh, there's uh, different magazines with uh, different themes and ways to to look at the, the problem right now.
1: Uh, just before we go, just quickly, um, has there mm-hmm. been one title that, that's that's uh, really flying off the shelves? That, uh, there been, is there a bit of a surprise right now that uh, you really see people going after uh, one particular magazine or, or maybe also or one pick that you really like at the moment?
6: One book that's been very popular, Plantopedia, also I think because lots of people are getting... Uh, indoor plants uh, during the pandemic. So this is a, a, a guide for taking care of your green friends. And then other uh, magazines like Apprentamento, Backstage Talks, an interview magazine from Slovakia. Also, there was a, a reprint of a magazine curated by Maison Martin Margiela. So this is a, a very special uh, edition, a reprint of the first uh, issue. And then uh, there's a new magazine uh, that's uh, particularly interesting for me, because I also come from a, a science background. Uh, so Seisma is uh, is a magazine, uh, art meets uh, science. Uh, the first issue uh, is dedicated to neuroscience. Uh, so this has really interesting uh, articles about how our brain perceives uh, music, fashion and food, uh, which is very interesting for me and and our customers uh, are really liking it as well.
1: Uh, Lois Cunha, I'm going to uh, have to leave it there, but also run out and uh, also tell our colleagues uh, to get uh, Seism magazine uh, for our shelves. And everyone's <laughs> trying to uh, decode uh, the brain uh, in these times. There was Lois Cunha, a co-founder of Under the Cover Books uh, and a Magazine Shop uh, in Lisbon. Uh, we've got about another uh, eight uh, minutes uh, bef- before we head. Jillian, I wanted to uh, go back to, let's rewind a week. Uh, it was not the sunny day that it uh, is here today. It was kind of a grey day. and I, I made the suggestion, I said, let's actually go and see an exhibition you're like oh wait, what do you mean can we go and see an exhibition and and you, I think you'd already seen the Alexei Brodovich uh, posters that are all yeah. over Zurich uh, at the moment so off we went to the Museum für Gestaltung uh, last uh, last weekend uh, to, to see this exhibition um, Im- impressions and we don't often do exhibition reviews but why not uh, because things are things are reopened now.
3: Well, beside the fact that it was just so great to be in a gallery space, it was like a a church, a temple, it had that incredible impact of going back in. But the Brodovich was just phenomenal sense of graphic design and it was contemporary and yet it was period and how his his career progressed through sort of the travel posters for Switzerland and um, and key Swiss brands and then on to be the and they and the subtitle for the exhibition is the first art director like he was so influential when it came to the language of magazines which I'm sure uh, meant a lot to you.
1: Mm. Uh, Andrew I I was uh, I think I barraged everybody in London as well because I was like just I was taking so many uh, photographs uh, and <laughs> then then sending them on to our own uh, creative director our own editor in chief uh ba- back in London uh, Andrea. i'm i'm sure you've probably seen funny face uh, a, a few times it was actually quite interesting in the show because oftentimes you know there's always a little mini cinema set up and and here it was quite interesting as Gillian was saying you went through all of this this period of all of his work for for department stores um uh, and and also for for food groups like like Pugnet in Paris and and then and his work they did for Martini as we said all of these brands and then you had this break you had this you know, they sort of set you up with this with this film um, and then you went into the world of all of the great work he did for for Harper's Bazaar um, in in the 40s and, and 50s but Andrew I'm wondering do you have any sort of broad Broadovich uh, memories or or any Broadovich moments where he said okay uh, to uh, maybe maybe I don't know maybe it's our creative director or, or others you've worked with like you know our covers you know we need to be delivering stories like this. Well, I think
7: what's fascinating is that most of the images that you snapped and sent to us, I hope there's no copyright issues there, Tyler. By the way, but um, yeah, I have not either. <laughs> were, they, they were they were they were they they they're so timeless that's the strange thing with a, a tiny tweak most of these things could be run as campaigns tomorrow and i think the use of illustration and the, and the combination of, of photography and illustration was the extraordinary thing as well so seeing many of those bizarre covers i remember but you know seeing them in the past and and that they're, they're, there's, there's something about the use of graphics and photography that is still something that eludes many art directors today. So that, that's what, 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 what was the, the great takeaway, I think, from him is you know, that you can produce work that, 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 that transcends the period it's in, sums up the period it's in, of course, but that transcends it and has this kind of longevity that I think hit all of you as you were w- walking around the exhibition.
3: Well, what I loved when you go through the exhibition, especially the Harper's Bazaar section, was he was fascinated by mirror images and duplicity, and and he adored using the gatefold. And when you see the spreads of the magazines out there, you just see how clever he was able to use the kind of architecture of a magazine to make really striking images. And also, the other thing was um, in his design lab was he loved photography and it was sort of post-war years where he embraced fashion photography more in a documentary style which resonated much more um, with the kind of consumer and the reader at the, at the moment and influenced uh, photographers like Avidon and, and Diane Arbus.
1: I think also the, the amazing thing you know, and, and I would encourage anyone uh, and who knows if if the museum for gestalten will will sort of send this on on the road as well but it is really a remarkable uh, exhibition uh, to see so uh, you know come along and see it if you can i think it runs until uh, till the towards the end of june but also just you have to think that there was that we were talking about a time when it was glue and exacto knives. Uh, this was a period when there was just there was no technology to go and deliver. All. When you talk about precision graphics, it was absolutely remarkable. And and I just wonder, you know, sometimes, do you think we get caught also by the technology today that you get into the straitjacket of okay, this these are the limitations. Mean, we think that obviously all of this technology uh, doesn't have limitations, but I, I wonder if that's you know when when in fact you you have many tools at your disposal once upon a time and and none, and if that sort of puts you into a bit of a straitjacket today in terms of the grid you need to work with, um, you know, this, the scale of page, etc.
7: Well, I, I think there's that. And I think there's also just the nature of work, how it's done uh, or on computer screens, it, it, in offices even when you have a team around you there's something very private about it it's very kind of locked into one person's vision whereas of, of course Brodovich was singular in what he did but there's something about you showing the work and it it, it being made up on a board there's a there's a, a sense of it having an audience quite quickly I think it helps people when they're, they're creating artwork to kind of i don't know to, to have more universal values to understand what its journey is going to be as a as a consumer product as well so i think that for us it's a it's amazing we you know, have an, an incredible art director and an, an amazing art team but there it's the process of making those things is it, it, kind of private until you kind of you jump in and you want to have a debate with them so i don't know it, we, i think it's 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 not just the the tools you're using, it's what
1: that does to you uh, in, in the process as well. Mm. Okay, and i are going to come back to you in a moment before we go. Um, Urs, very quickly, when you think about culture and what you can get out and do or not do in these times, what are you looking forward to most over the coming months as, as things open up? Is it... Uh, yeah, is it is it a concert in the field somewhere? Uh, is it getting to a good exhibition? Uh, is it uh, getting to do a gallery tour in Antwerp? What are you most looking forward to?
5: Guess what? It's cinema, cinema, cinema. <laughs> No, Looking a- forward so much to, to go to a cinema. Gillian nodding over there <laughs> a, as
1: well.
4: Totally, that dark experience. Kind yeah. of experience. <laughs> 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 um, I've just walked by the, the, the Opera House. I just can't wait going back to Covent Garden and coming back to the Opera here. So, so hopefully, at some stage, Opera will not be on a screen, but really in a theater and we can listen and, and see it.
1: Andrew?
7: uh galleries but with spontaneity that's that's the thing i miss is you you, even when they've been open here in the past few months you 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 have
1: to plan and get your ticket way in advance i like that thing on a sunday is like let's go to a gallery OK, well, uh, we um, we can uh, we'll probably sort of, you know, wandering down the street. We we'll take a few more pictures and Andrew will be mindful of the copyright on them uh, as, as well, as well when, uh, when we do so. Uh, Andrew Tuck uh, in London. Huge thanks. Gillian, you're heading up to the mountains. You're going to be back in about uh, two days time. But very, very nice to see you here. I'm sure you'll be around the microphones again as well.
3: Yeah, I'm going to be um, uh, working with Nolan on a uh, radio show about architecture and design.
1: Very, very good. Uh, I, I know that Ors, you're going to be uh, maybe out, not looking for uh, fabricated or or, cl- or clean meat. I think uh, other reporting to be done. Do you know what is your poem about next week?
5: I don't know yet. You I don't know yet. One day before, I have no ah, idea. Okay,
1: <laughs> all right. For our listeners, he does he does a weekly poem for the for the <laughs> NZZ. Very good, Chronicle. <laughs> <quantical laughs> uh, Cornelia, week ahead for you.
4: Uh, work. Work and, and watching and the ev- watching the
1: ever given as well. Yes, I think.
4: and 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 being on on endless Zoom calls and <laughs> Skype interviews and so on.
1: But anyway, very good to have you around a proper table uh, as well today. Great, and thank, thank you, you. again uh, for the Easter bunnies. Uh, big thanks also to uh, Marcus Hippie, also a studio manager here in Zurich, Desiree Benley and also Nora Hull back in London. Uh, I'm going to be back uh, with the briefing. I believe I'm going to be here on Tuesday doing that. Uh, also, of course, Monocle on Sunday returns next week. Easter bunnies uh, as well. We look forward to seeing that. Also, thanks uh, to Emma Nelson. She's back with the news headlines just in a moment. Have a very lovely Sunday. Goodbye.